My song might haunt your dreams Tonight I'm the man From God knows where Singer, songwriter, painter, essayist, collaborator, criminologist, folk, country, Americana, beat. All of the above, none of the above. This is Tom Russell's podcast from God Knows Where. John Yolkenbeck from Frontera Records here. Welcoming you to Tom's first podcast from God Knows Where. So I'll give you a quick little introduction. I'm sure if you're tuning in, you're probably familiar with Tom, but there might be uh, one or two of you that aren't. So let me just uh, give you a little of the rundown. He's released 35 highly acclaimed albums, published six books, including a book of his art, a book of his songs, and a five-star rated book of essays called Ceremonies of the Horseman. Russell was awarded the 2015 ASCAP Deems Taylor Award for Excellence in Music Journalism for an article he wrote on Johnny Cash, and his paintings reside in several major American museums and are represented throughout six world galleries. His current CD LP is called October in the Railroad Earth, and it's been doing very well, scoring real high on the charts in Europe and on the folk charts here. But, you know, enough of that. Let's do what we're all here for. And let me welcome Tom Russell, who's just recently moved back to Austin. Thanks, John. It's great to be back in Texas. Sitting here playing my old Carson Robeson guitar from the 30s. Kind of a Sears offshoot of a Gibson. But, uh, you know, the podcast idea is a new one for me. And I think the trick is balancing the use of the social media in an educational in a productive way without, as uh, Bob Dylan would say, witch-doctoring up the planet <laughs> right? with politics or snarky commentary or rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Let's stick to music and art. So what do you have in mind for this first time around? I'd like to focus on my major influences and inspirations, and those would be Ian Tyson and Bob Dylan. Right. Ian Tyson is the man who wrote 100 great songs. We've co-written songs including uh, he wrote the most popular song ever written by a Canadian. Four Four Strong strong Winds, sure. So I'll talk about working with him and maybe get a word in from Ian. We're going to have special guests on this podcast. Cool. He's back on the boards. He's out playing. He is a major influence for me. Then my biggest inspiration of all time would have to be Bob Dylan, the journey, the catalog, the depth, going against the booze and still surviving following his muse through all the praise to the Nobel Prize, and I think he's hit the ball so far out of the park, we can't find the ball. (laughs) But uh, Tyson and Dylan came out of that same scene I want to talk about, and I want to summon up some of the history and personal war stories uh, that I know about that folks out there in listening land may not have heard. That'd be great. This podcast thing, you know, John, once I had a radio show on the legendary K-Fat Radio in Gilroy, California, the garlic capital of the world. (laughs) I had the graveyard ship, and I used to say um, I got fired for playing too much Bob Dylan. I was obsessed with Desolation Row. They're selling postcards of the hanging. Right. And I'm still trying to figure out where Desolation Row is. Bob once said it was across the border in Juarez near a Coca-Cola factory. Maybe that's why we moved to El Paso. 
and that in the Marty Robbins epic, El Paso. And here's a funny thing, I think. There's a book out on the recording of Highway 61 Revisited, which is Bob's, one of his greatest records. Sure. That implies Desolation Row might have been influenced by Marty Robbins' El Paso, that kind of long ballad with the guitar interludes, in in Marty's case, uh, Grady Martin. Tom, I've heard several performances of Desolation Row on the Cutting Edge box set that came out a while back. Um, Didn't you tell me you were at one of those shows? Yeah, I heard him sing it at the Hollywood Bowl. It must have been 65, and I I snuck down to the lower seats near the, the stage, and as he started the song, and nobody had ever heard it, the ushers came and got me and were ushering me back to uh, the seat in the back. But I heard every verse, every word, and it really changed my life because I thought, holy God, he wrote that? What, it, what does it mean? And uh, I snuck backstage as I usually did after the show and uh, see if I could see Dylan or talk to him. And, you know, I was a kid then, still in high school, and Johnny Cash was back there, wow. you know, the, the Johnny Cash of the... You know, he was still probably, you know, a little strung out. And he, he kept saying, oh, I got to meet the man and we're going to take him to a party. And I was I was trying to overhear where the party would be. And uh, man, but I was really inspired by that song. Not to get off track, but didn't you also tell me at one time you saw the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl? I can't remember if there was a story there or not. Yeah, that's funny. In, in the 1964, the Beatles came to L.A. It was a huge deal. I finally admitted I was a fan. Right. And my sisters were. And uh, I was a bigger kid then because I was playing football. Uh, and I mentioned that in a song called Rise Up Handsome Johnny on the last record. But uh, Folk Hotel. When the Beatles limo approached coming down the street, I jumped in front of it and started screaming out orders, get out of the way, get out of the way, police out of the way, like I was their bodyguard. And I was able to walk through about six security gates in front of the Beatles limo. And I opened the door and John Lennon said, couldn't have done it without you, mate, or something like that. And I watched the whole show from the side of the stage and was interviewed by the Herald Examiner, I think it was called then, about how I was a chip off the old block because I was a son of the world's greatest <laughs> gate crasher and all that. But there's a, speaking of the Beatles, there's a funny story that connects Ian Tyson, Bob Dylan, and the Beatles. As I was reading Suz, Susie Rotola's book on Bob, uh, I think it's called Freewheeling Times, it claimed that Ian Tyson turned Bob Dylan on to marijuana. And uh, I was chatting with Ian one day years ago, and I asked him about that. You know, I didn't know he had smoked back then, but I guess everybody was. And he said, no, I don't think I did that. And then I turned to him and said, well, if you turned Bob Dylan on to marijuana, Bob Dylan turned the Beatles on to marijuana. So you, my friend, are a cultural icon. (laughs) And Ian liked that. He goes, yeah, well, maybe I did turn him on. So he, you can find him on YouTube now telling people, you know, like, tell me something you don't think your fans know. And he tells that story about turning Dylan on, Dylan turning the Beatles on. Getting back to Ian and Four Strong Winds, 
I love Neil Young's version of that, and I think I read that it helped buy Ian's ranch in Canada, kind of like Joe Henry saying that Madonna recording one of his songs paid for his kids' braces. Yeah, Four Strong Winds was probably written in 62, 63. The story is this, and it's pretty good. Bob Dylan walks into the bar, a bar, let's say, like uh, the other end, the bitter end, the kettle of fish. They're all hanging out in the village right. in New York. And, and according to Ian, Bob says, Hey, Ian, let me a cigarette. <laughs> hey, Ian, buy me a beer. Hey, Ian, listen to this new song I got. How many roads must a man walk down? So he'd just written Blowing in the Wind, and Ian sips his beer and says... Hell, I can do that, and goes back to the old Earl Hotel on Washington Square and writes, Four Strong Winds, Four Strong Winds, That Blow Lonely. And then Sylvia Tyson later told me that, not to be outdone, she got in the bathtub at the Earl Hotel where the uh, cockroaches couldn't get her and wrote, You Were On My Mind. Got up this morning, you were on my mind which was a big hit for the Wii Five, led by John Stewart's brother. All that happened in the space of a few days, which I think is phenomenal, given where we're at today. So picture that in the village. Yeah, um, amazing. Sure. So when was the first time you heard Dylan? Well, imagine a bedroom in uh, my grandmother's house in 1962-63, California, right? Uh, we got kicked out of our house, and my father was in some kind of trouble. And uh, I was listening to the radio at night, and on the same night, I heard Buck Owens for the first time. You know, something like, uh, excuse me, I think I've got a heartache or something. And then I, I switched channels during the commercial and heard Bob Dylan. Uh, it was either off his first or second album doing Don't Think Twice. Yeah, the second album. And I, I thought, wow, there's this wild new form of hillbilly folk music happening. And my Uncle George had moved out of that bedroom, and uh, he's my mom's brother, and moved to New York where he was a concert pianist and toured with people. But my Uncle George played the Star Spangled Banner at the March on Washington in 63. Oh, that's cool. Right before or after Bob Dylan played, uh, I don't think it was Blowing in the Wind, I think it was When the Ships Come the Ship in. Comes In. And maybe Uncle George met Dylan or something. So there's this grand conjunction that I'm in his bedroom listening to uh, Dylan and Buck Owens. Then later on, I saw Dylan... At the Santa Monica Civic, I think, for the first time, it must have been 63, before I saw him at the Hollywood Bowl. and uh, That was early. I had snuck in. Uh, a, a messenger showed up saying, I got a, uh, a message for Bob Dylan here. A, uh, you know, Somebody has sent, and I said, I'll take that in there because I work with Bobby, and nobody can take it in but me, and the security believed me, and I knocked on Bob's dressing room door and there was a, a gal in there and she goes, what do you want? And I go, I, I got a telegram for Bobby and I could see Dylan in there kind of working on some lyrics by the uh, dressing room mirror and I walked in and handed it to him. He goes, hey, thanks, kid. <laughs> and I stayed for the show. I snuck backstage and kind of hid behind a curtain and stayed for the show and Dylan saw me and he kind of laughed. He knew what was up and after the concert, we were out in the parking lot, my nervous friends and I, high school buddies, and 
Dylan uh, walked out and got in his car waiting for his road manager and he rolled his window down and motioned me over and said, hey, telegram boy, come here. And I go, uh-oh. <laughs> and he, I got near him. He was signing people's harmonica boxes. We were the 10 fan fanatics. And he goes, wow. hey, telegram boy, tell me something. Where's the nearest liquor store? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, Bob. I'm, 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 I'm underage. And I go, come back when you're grow up and my buddy who could drive said don't worry bob we know where it is just follow our car when you pull out of here which they did i don't know who was driving his car victor malmutas or new earth but they followed us up santa monica boulevard and we were scared man and sure one light two lights we did, we had no idea where the liquor store was and i was going my god why did we do this and don't worry we'll see a liquor store sign finally at a light we stopped and Dylan Carr stopped behind us and he jumped out of the passenger side. And this actually happened. He danced around our car, waving his hands like a whirling dervish. And we With thought one he hand had a gun three. or something. And he was laughing at us because he knew it was all a ruse. And then they, he got back in his car and they pulled around us and drove off into history. That's a great story. Do you know if Bob and Ian were hanging out together in the village back then, or were they just running in the same circles? Well, here's, here's some unusual folk history uh, that a lot of people might know about. Let's picture a bar in the village like the Kettle of Fish again, or the other end, the bitter end. Folks say one of those bars, let's say it's the Kettle of Fish, right. and it's 61, 62, and there are four guys with cowboy hats, believe it or not, sitting around the bar. One of them would be Ian Tyson from Canada, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, a major influence on Bob Dylan, right. who came from Brooklyn originally, Harry Jackson, a vastly interesting, interesting artist, um, originally from Chicago, I think. That I don't think I know him. Was a part-time cowboy singer and then became a painter, sculptor. Mm. And then Peter Lafarge, who became famous later for his songs about Native Americans. And uh, Johnny Cash recording Peter's Ballad of Ira Hayes and also a, a full album of Bitter Tears. And then maybe throw in a couple guys in the corner without cowboy hats. Freddie Neal, a big influence on Dylan. Tim Harden. And, uh, and let's say then in walks Bob Dylan. And, and this is happening. Now there's two major points about this scene that have been overlooked by folk histories and people. And one is that these guys were singing cowboy music, um, especially Harry Jackson and Jack and Lafarge. Back in the late 50s, they were developing this thing called cow cowboy poetry and music and carrying the torch. And uh, Tyson, who is known for resuscitating cowboy music in the 80s, late 70s and early 1980s, was actually writing great cowboy songs in the 60s, like Someday Soon. Mm-hmm. And uh, and doing traditional cowboy songs. Yeah. And Harry Jackson uh, is a fascinating character, and uh, Ramblin' Jack and Ian and I have talked about it quite a bit. And Harry at the time was not only a painter, but he and Jack and Carolyn Hester and and a few other people recorded a great cowboy LP. I think there's two or three LPs, and it. it's called Bad Men, 
Pete Seeger is on it as well. It's excellent. Mm-hmm. And uh, Harry Jackson was a combat artist in the Marines prior to this, like Tom Lee, who, who was from El Paso, combat artist. Um, Peter Lafarge was a spy on Navy ships coming back from the Korean War. Really? Harden, Tim Harden and Freddie Neal were also in the service. Uh, Ian Tyson reminded me of this. And uh, this is something that isn't covered in the folk histories. You know, the, the armed services and what it did to some of these guys. But uh, Harden and Lafarge especially came back with addictive drug problems. And, and mm. nobody really talks about this much. It doesn't no, fit uh-uh. into the folk scenario. Right. Also... Harry Jackson knew the painter Jackson Pollock very well. Jackson Pollock, the great abstract expressionist, uh, had turned his back on realism. And uh, Harry went along with it for a while, and then Harry went back to realism. He did a portrait of Bob Dylan that's somewhere. Oh, cool. And he went back to doing traditional cowboy realism. And he finally went off and moved to Italy and became a very famous sculptor. Peter Lafarge died young of an overdose, I think it was mm-hmm. 66, after right. Johnny Cash uh, recorded Bitter Tears. Freddie Neal split the scene and ended up saving the dolphins in Florida and disappearing. And Tim Harden never really kicked his drug problems, eventually OD'd in L.A. But right. this is some of the background to, to these guys' histories that I find fascinating. Yeah. Moving forward a little bit, let's talk about your songwriting process with Ian Tyson. Obviously, he never had the acclaimed Dylan or Peter, Paul, and Mary did, but I know Navajo Rug was a huge hit in Canada, and he had also recorded Gallo del Cielo. Was that before you met him? Yeah, uh, I think going back to uh, Dylan and Ian and Sylvia, Peter, Paul, and Mary, I don't think Ian and Sylvia, who I think are the greatest folk group ever um, Mm -hmm. got their acclaim they were Canadians number one and number two when they came down and Sylvia told me this (laughs) and played Newport and stuff like that they weren't doing protest music they were Canadians they were being led into the country and they didn't you know there was nothing they were supposed to protest so they weren't treated very well by some people in the folk community Mm-hmm. And, of course, Ian's very stubborn. They had three or four major record deals. That All the records are great. All the material's great, believe it or not. You can go back and listen to it. I did a tribute to them on True North Records a few years ago right. called Play One More of the Songs of Ian and Sylvia that you can, that you can pick up. But I was completely influenced by these people. And later on, I went to the folk clubs in, uh, you know, in L.A. and Huntington Beach, the Ash Grove, the Golden Bear. And, you, you know, you got to sit in front of the stage 10 feet away. They, they were tremendous. They always would have a great guitar player with them. And the, the singing, the songs, the yeah. stories were unbelievable. Um, and so can you imagine, fast forward, uh, 64, 74, 84, uh, 20 25 years later, myself sitting across from my major influence writing Navajo Rug. Ian came to New York. He had already recorded Gallo del Cielo uh, in, I don't know when it was, on his first 
one of his first cowboy records in the 80s, Cowboyography, and uh, no, it was Old Corrals and Sagebrush, his first, there were a lot of traditional songs on that. And uh, he loved Gallo. We corresponded through the mail and he recorded it. Back then, I called it Gallo de Cielo, which is grammatically incorrect. We later changed it to Gallo del Cielo, mm-hmm. Rooster from the Heavens. But fast forward to co-writing with your, uh, with your hero. And I'm, he had a cabin up in the Rocky Mountains uh, of Alberta. And, Russell, come on, we're going to write a song today. And we'd drive out there with some wow. sandwiches and red wine and whatever, tea and and I'm sitting across from my greatest influence in a cabin, uh, writing, I'm writing Blue Wing, and we're co- you know, he's writing Cowboy Pride, and we're working on Claude Dallas, this major outlaw ballad. Ian has a, a very literary person, very sophisticated. Yeah. He had a degree in graphic arts. He could have oh, been a great painter, I didn't but know he that. was too hard on himself, and... He had tried to be a bronc writer and this and that, and he broke his arm or his leg, and he started picking up the guitar, and he met Sylvia. But here I am, and he's sitting across from me, and he's reading Alfred Lloyd Tennyson on love, and he had subscribed to The New Yorker for 30 years, and he had a thesaurus there and a dictionary and a book on Shakespeare and Teddy Blue Abbots. We pointed him north. That's amazing. We would try to write, and then for a breather, we would go on hikes and... He would ask me to tell stories about my cowboy brother, and then we could base songs on that. And years later, uh, he came to New York. I took him to Switzerland to the Frutigen Festival, and we hung out. And But, uh, you know, Navajo Rug, uh, I was living in a, uh, I called it the bunker, a storefront in Brooklyn that was boarded over, and I had a, a bed in there and a typewriter. Yeah. He came over after working a private party in uh, New York, and he was scared. He got let off on the wrong block in a really tough Puerto Rican neighborhood, and I went and rescued him, and there were voodoo stores. And <laughs> we got inside my bunker and padlocked the door and drank a few bottles of red wine, and I started talking to him about this idea of writing a song about a couple making love on a, Navajo rug, and he liked that idea, and he shoved the uh, lyrics in his guitar place. So I got him a cab back to Manhattan, and he finished Navajo rug in a Super 8 motel in Fort Worth. He nice. recorded it, and uh, it became a big hit. There's that great story in the, quote, gray pages of Clarence Clemens' autobiography where Clarence is hanging out with Kinky Friedman and Dylan knocks at the door and tells him he's been at this Joe Ely show and he's all raving about this song about a chicken. So obviously Dylan and Springsteen are both familiar with Gaio. It's definitely endured. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about writing it. Well, I wrote Gaio del Cielo in a garage in Mountain View, California in 1978. And it came out of... Uh, my travels down into Mexico, which I love to do, and around the Copper Canyon, I met an old professor at a hotel once, and uh, he told me a bunch of Pancho Villa stories about how Villa would ride into a big ranch in Mexico and crying about the revolution. He'd tell the rich landowner he wanted to marry the guy's beautiful daughter, 
And if he wasn't able to marry the daughter, he was going to take the guy's ranch, and then he would ride <laughs> off with the daughters. He had about 10 wives. At least this was the story I was told. Right. And uh, also, I was listening to Tex-Mex music and Mexican music when I grew up as a kid in L.A. Mm-hmm. And uh, even Vaya con Dios, Les Paul and Mary Ford. So I had... sure. Uh, the Mexican idea in my head and then the Via stories and, of course, probably influenced a little by Marty Robbins' Gunfighter Ballads right. and Tex Ritter and, uh, you know, later on, Joe Ely did a great version of it, but Ian's was one of the first. It must be quite a trip knowing that somebody who's been such a big inspiration to you is also a fan of your work. Let's cut to Ian now and hear him talking about your newest record, October in the Railroad Earth. Here's Ian. It's a fresher Tom Russell. It's one of the best things he's done. It's looser, and he's got some good, good, good players. The, the boys picking on it, they can really play. And they play nice and loose, high-energy stuff, and it's good. Now, I, I would recommend it highly. He's an original, that's for sure. He has a new album every three weeks very prolific pisses me off one of the last songs i co-wrote with tyson was called when the wolves no longer sing you know in other words when the poets and the troubadours no longer sing and it has a bridge that goes what's happened to the music where have the wild ones gone wild ones like ian tyson and bob dylan and ramblin jack and leonard cohen so I'm co-writing uh, a couple of last songs with Ian a few years ago, and uh, he hits on a story we want to explore about our friend Ross Knock, the mule guide who was working for the National Park Service in Arizona, leading tourists back into the mountains on mules. And for insurance reasons, they wanted the cowboys to exchange their cowboy hats for crash helmets. Ross wasn't going for it. So picture Ian Tyson and Tom Russell hung over after a night out in El Paso. And I'm not in the mood to write. And Ian has just gone through a romantic breakup. And we drank about a gallon of shard the night before. And I'm trying to wake up and, or go back to bed. And Ian Tyson wanders off under an elm tree to think about a song. He'll never give up. So a half hour goes by, and he comes back, and he says, Russell, have you ever heard of the ballad Lord Lovell? And I said, no, not really. Then he starts reciting it. Lord Lovell, he stands at the stable door, brushing his milk-white steed, when who should pass by but Lady Nancy Bell, wishing her lover Godspeed. Where are you going, Lord Lovell, she said. Come, promise, tell me true. I'm going over the seas, said Lord Lovell strange countries for to see and Ian's reciting the whole ballad and he's totally enchanted with the ancient poetry so we have a start we use that as a base for our song about muleteer Ross Knox there you go that's my final note on these two heroic songwriters who have formed their own music based upon a wide knowledge of traditional folk songs and folklore and that would be my advice for young and old aspiring songwriters, and even to myself. Learn to sing dozens of old folk gems. Study the brilliance of the poetry of the old songs handed down in the process. I read once where Dylan said that the most important thing you can do for somebody is to inspire them. I think the quote was, what else can you do for them? Do you have any final thoughts about Bob as being such a big inspiration for you? 
I really want to read something that I think is important from Bob Dylan, that he's, was it old interview in Rolling Stone, but I think we can use it here, and it, it influences me, and it, he says about his influences, I always thought that one man, the lone balladeer with the guitar, could blow it a whole army off the stage if he knew what he was doing, and I've seen it happen. It's important to stay away from the celebrity trap. The media is a great meat grinder. It's never satisfied and it must be fed. But there's a power in darkness too in keeping things hidden. Some guys got it down. Leonard Cohen, Paul Brady, Lou Reed, secret heroes, John Prine, David Allen Coe, Tom Waits. And Dylan says, I listen to more of that kind of stuff than whatever is popular at the moment. They're not just witch doctoring up the planet. They don't set up barriers. Gordon Lightfoot, every time I hear a song of his, it's like I wish it would last forever. And in, in a way, that's what I think of when I think of Bob Dylan and Ian Tyson. They aren't witch doctoring up the planet. It is not craft beer, you know. They're great songwriters. And one last thing as far as my songwriting and uh, thinking about things people think, who's going to build your wall, and what are politics and all this. I, I agree with what Richard Thompson, who I think is a great songwriter, said, uh, that as far as morality, you, he said, you can't fail to reflect your own morality in what you write. It has to be in there, and I know it is. But I don't like people beating me over the head with their beliefs. I find it repulsive, so I do not try to do it to others. And I hope that what I do is non-dogmatic and subtle. My songs are about the human heart and the human condition, and I believe in that too. That's it. This is Tom Russell, the man from God Knows Where, signing off from Austin, Texas. I'm the man from God Knows Where. Tom, it's been great talking to you. I look forward to doing it again real soon. For the listeners, Tom's music is available through FronteraRecords.com. His artwork is at TomRussellArt.com. And of course, you can always find general and tour information at TomRussell.com. Also, follow him on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RussellTom and on Instagram at TRNovaBeat. You can subscribe to upcoming shows of the podcast from God Knows Where using your favorite podcast app. I'm John Yolkenbeck from Frontera Records, and thanks for listening. How great is Tom Russell? He is terrific. Isn't he tremendous? He really creates a mood. Yeah, it's always the best. I would like to quit this job and just travel with him. Travel with him? If, if the money can be worked out. I'm sure, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs>